So to begin, I want to tell you about a man that you all know, even though you've never met him. Uh, it's King David, and he was a very unique man. He was the only person in the Bible to be called a man after God's own heart. Moses wasn't called this, even though he led the people of Israel out of Egypt and he spoke to God face to face. Job wasn't called this, even though he was perhaps one of the most righteous people besides Christ in the Bible. David, so what made David special? What singled him out in this manner that made him a man after God's own heart? Well, the reason he was a man after God's own heart, the thing that separates him from other characters in the Bible more than anything, is that he confessed his sins with God regularly. He wasn't perfect, but he learned that God, above all, desired to forgive sinners. If you were here for the Sunday school lesson this morning, you heard Sprawl talk about how the story of the Bible is God working with man to redeem them. And that's just what David understood. David's greatest desire was to be forgiven. And the father desired to forgive. That was his heart. Because by forgiving sinners, it brings him the most glory. This is what David understood most of all. Everyone knows that the sin with Bathsheba. Everyone knows the murder of Uriah. But little do we consider very often that the book of Psalms, one of the longest, the longest book in the Bible is essentially a testament to David's desire to ask for forgiveness for his sins. So many of those psalms start with, I've done wrong in some way or another, please forgive me, and then they end with praise to God. See, David learned not to let his sins remain unconfessed for long and to keep things honest with God. He learned not to hide his sins and not to make excuses because he knew that God sought to forgive his sins. Now, he did pay the consequences of his sins. No one's arguing that, but it's not the point. If you want to have a good relationship with God, one of the things you need to understand is that you need to keep your sins not hidden. You need to ask for forgiveness right away. If this gets bad, by the way, please tell me, and I can take it off and we can move to this. Uh, So, You need to learn that God desires to forgive us so long as we confess our sin. Do you want to have a great relationship with others? Then you need to learn to confess your sins to others and ask for their forgiveness. You see, that is but one of three ways that we have in this message on ways to keep our relationships in the church, in the church, happy and healthy. Today we are back at the end of the letter of James. This is the last message in this letter, last passage in this letter, which is about living with joy in suffering. Now this letter is full of many hard things to do, some of which we may not feel ready for. In the last sermon I preached, I talked about our response to injustice. And, man, this is annoying. Turn on the boundary mic, please. I'm done with this. Thank you. Okay, hopefully I don't tap too much. In the last sermon I preached, which was a while ago, I talked about our response to injustice and wicked employers. It contained the hard command to be patient and to wait for God. Now James moves on to a new topic. This is the topic of having a healthy church life. 
In particular, the passage focuses on three of the best ways for Christians to love each other and to keep the church healthy and happy. This sermon will be on James chapter 5, verses 13 to 20, if you haven't already turned there. Go ahead and please open there now, James chapter 5, verses 13 to 20. In this passage, we will see that James wants us to pray during difficult times, celebrate good times, and continually confess our sins to each other to keep having joy in suffering. I'll say that again. In this passage, we will see that James wants us to pray during difficult times, celebrate good times, and continually confess our sins to each other to keep having joy in suffering. I'm going to read the passage now. Go ahead and read with me. It says, Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another so that you might be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. My brothers, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So in the first verse, we see James give a very uh, succinct and fitting command. And he first qualifies the command to those who are suffering. So if you're not suffering right now, this doesn't apply to you. But I'm sure many of you are suffering right now or in the next few hours will be suffering for some reason. So it'll apply to you very soon. Now, not every moment of life will be one of suffering, but every life will contain some moments of suffering, some more than others. Whether you suffer or not, this command will apply at some point in your life. So if you are suffering, pray. Well, pray about what, James? I mean, that's great, but it doesn't really tell us what we're supposed to pray for. Well, let's consider this. The previous passage was about how to suffer and glorify God when you're dealing with wicked and unjust employers, people that weren't paying these Christians. And the verdict was simple. Trust God and wait. It's very difficult words. Coming off the back of this topic is this command to pray when you are suffering. So besides waiting and trusting in God for his return and his deliverance for you, You can also pray to God about your suffering, that it would be relieved, that you would be able to endure. Now, to many of us, this command to pray is essentially the same thing as waiting. It doesn't feel that much different. As I said before, this command will only be satisfying to do if you trust God. James is giving this command and the commands that come after 
assuming that you have been following all of his previous commands. Go figure. Now, if you haven't, you won't have grown much in your trust in God. But if you have been following what he's been telling you to do, you've been learning how to have joy in suffering. And part of that is learning to trust God. So, then if you trust God, when you are suffering, you will pray. It's as simple as that. Because you know God can help you through suffering, he can strengthen you and make it possible to, at times, endure until he delivers you. In this way, we can help the church stay healthy and happy by praying with each other in our sufferings to strengthen one another and keep us unified. Now, next, we have a rather unusual command, at least for the book of James. Like I've been telling you, this book is about how to suffer with joy. That's not a very happy topic. Uh, So, (laughs) to think about because it's about difficulties. So when James says this... Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. It's kind of a strange thing to say in this book. James is saying that it's okay to be happy. It's okay to enjoy life. So <laughs> if, you, if, you're, if your life is going great, things are just falling into place, you don't have that many issues, then be happy. But don't forget who gave them to you. And rejoice. And God, who gave them to you. So, can you do that? I mean, obviously we all can do that. But the question is, do you do that? So often, we can get caught up on how good an experience is. A good party, you know, a relaxing walk, an engaging conversation with someone you know well. um, An exciting victory for your football team. These are all good things to celebrate and enjoy. Just don't forget to praise God for them. He's the one who gave them to you and allowed you to enjoy them. Not all of life is suffering, and it's wrong to not enjoy the good things God sends your way. By praising God about what's good in our lives, other people in the church will hear of what's good in our lives and be able to celebrate with us. This brings the church together, strengthens them in unity, and provides opportunity for praising God, for the whole church to take part in. So far, we have seen that prayer and rejoicing are both ways James lays out to keep the church healthy during suffering. Now in verse 14, and for the rest of the message, we get into the bulk of what's going on here, and also the most controversial point. So read with me in verses 14 to 16. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another so that you may be healed. So many, when they first read these verses, will come to the conclusion that James is saying that if someone in the church is ill, then you can call the elders, they can come by, pray over this person, anoint them with oil, and then they'll get some miraculous free health care. But obviously that doesn't work. Knowing our elders at this church... 
if this was real, they would have gone to every sick person in the church by now and healed them all. We wouldn't have any health problems here. But we've got plenty of people with health problems here. So, the people who believe that you can just have the elders go, pray over them, and be healed are those who believe in what's called a faith healing or a miracle healing. And while those do happen, not saying they can't happen, that's not what this is talking about. Now, let's look at the text closely here to see what it's talking about. James asks the question, is anyone sick? Does sick here refer to an actual illness or something else? I mean, if it's an actual illness, we're probably talking about a cold or a flu or something like that. It can also mean, however, weak, as in physically weak or spiritually weak. So James tells those who are sick to call the elders of the church to come and pray over the sick church member and to anoint them with oil. In the Old Testament, the anointing of oil was used to set apart people for a specific purpose. King David again, he was anointed when God chose him to become king over Israel. That's when Samuel came by and poured some oil on his head. This was done as a symbolic action to tell publicly that God had chosen David to rule over his people. Now the reason we no longer anoint people with oil is because it's not a part of our culture. Instead, we sign contracts or we graduate in a ceremony that acts in much the same way. Now, as Christians, however, we are anointed. Every person who has faith today is anointed by the Holy Spirit. We receive the Holy Spirit in the same way Christ received the Holy Spirit when he was baptized. Just as Christ was anointed by the Spirit, so too are we anointed by the Spirit. However, this text in James is different from that. This is talking about physical oil, but the significance is still there. The sick individual is being set apart for some purpose. Now, the next thing this text brings up is this prayer of faith. The prayer of faith may or may not refer to the praying of the elders over the sick. If it is referring to the prayer of the elders... And if this prayer does save this person to eternal life, then it would appear that elders can save other people by praying over them. However, we know that no one can save another person by praying for them. Salvation is between God and that person alone. God has no grandchildren, not even if your elders pray over you. So, the mere act of prayer won't save someone else. Even if God uses the prayer of faith to save someone, ultimately it's God doing it. So when we read that this prayer of faith will save the sick person, we have several ways to understand save. The first is saving for eternal salvation, which I just told you about and which does not make sense. The next one is faith healing. If you pray hard enough, then you will receive what you ask for. Or if you have enough faith, you will be healed. That type of thing. This would mean, oh wait, yeah, this would mean that it is the praying of the elders which brings miraculous healing to the sick individual. We know this isn't true since there isn't, there is no such promise made in the Bible. Besides that, I know plenty of Christians who are plenty mature enough and have enough faith that if this were true, wouldn't have any health issues. 
but often it's the most mature Christians that have the most issues. The next sense in understanding save is to see the prayer of the elders as an encouragement to a discouraged Christian. The word sick here, like I said earlier, can also mean weak or weary. If that meaning is taken, then the elders pray and anoint this sick person to lift them up and encourage them. And we know this works, even if it's not done by an elder, because whenever a Christian prays with another person about what's going on in their life, they are encouraged. That's natural. Now, as however, as far as this text is concerned, it doesn't make perfect sense. Consider this. The last few words of verse 15 and the first sentence of verse 16 show a connection between a sick individual and a sin they committed. So, otherwise, there is no reason for James to write it. And when a Christian has committed some sin that is discouraging them, the only encouragement from an elder they should be receiving is the encouragement to repent. So while this view is possible, I think there's another view that is more likely, which I'm going to talk about now. The view I am taking, which I believe is correct, sees saving as both physical and spiritual, but not saving to eternal life. I understand this sick person to be sick because of their sin, whether this is a physical disease or ailment, or if it's a relationship turned sour. Both are a sickness of a sort. Essentially, it's a situation where things are not as they're supposed to be. The very fact that the elders are called to oversee this event indicates the seriousness of the sin and the sickness. The sick person here is a believer. Remember, James is talking to the church. These are all believers. The sick person is a believer who... Wait, where am I? Yeah, the sick person is a believer who has realized the gravity of their sin, sees their dark future, and wants to repent. The elders are called to help this process along through prayer and anointing with oil. The prayer is there to encourage the sinner on their, on their path of changing their life, repentance, and the oil is to mark the significance of the event, a ceremony. If the sick person is willing to repent and change their life, then God will certainly begin to heal this individual, both in heart and in body. Now, for some, their bodies might be too wasted away by the effects of their sin for them to see physical improvement before death. Yet they will gain a peace from knowing that God has forgiven them their sins and will begin to heal the spiritual scars caused by their sin. And even if they die, God will raise them up. So no matter what state one is in, separating yourself from sin, here's the big idea, guys, separating yourself from sin will begin the process of healing that James is talking about. It's always good to separate yourself from sin. This is why we have verse 16, where James commands the whole church to confess their sins to each other. This verse teaches the principle of repenting and asking for forgiveness from the source of the hurt. In other words, it's accountability. You probably all have heard that before. If you got angry at someone at the church and hurt their feelings, you don't call the elders and repent to them until you've gone to the person you've hurt and asked for their forgiveness, right? The next thing we need to understand 
is that the sick person here is in a very serious condition. And that's indicated by the fact that the elders are being called. If you have a bone to pick with your neighbor, but you don't get the matter settled, or, but you get the matter settled and both parties are happy, there's no reason to call the elders and have them pray over you. So the reason the elders are being called is because the sickness is serious. Now, in verse 16, we see it says that the prayer of a righteous person can do much. Initially, from us reading that, you may say, well, you just said we don't believe in faith healing, but this seems to say that if a righteous person prays for someone to be healed, they're more than likely to be healed. Well, hold on. We must consider this. This isn't a promise that whatever a righteous person prays for, they will get. It's, it's, all it is is a sentence that says the prayer of a righteous person is effective. Maybe your translation says can do much. Why is a righteous person's prayer effective? Are they using some kind of you know, hidden righteousness battery that they hold in their pocket, and whenever they really want a certain prayer to be answered, they'll, they'll like hold it up to their forehead and then pray to turn God's ear? No. The reason a righteous person's prayer is powerful is because they only pray for what could be in God's will. Through study of the word and prayer, those should be familiar to you by now too, they have learned that the prayers God acts upon most often in a miraculous way are those that line up with his will, those that will glorify him. Now, the latter half of verse 15 is interesting because it indicates a connection between the sickness and the sin. As in, once the elders come to pray, not only will God raise up the sick individual, but if he has committed any sins, they will be forgiven him. From verse 16, we can understand that a good chunk of the church was ill due to sin. Whether this was relational sickness or a physical sickness, it doesn't really matter. What James is pointing out is that God will only begin and end the process of healing after sin has been confessed and repented of. If the sick person calls for the elders in knowledge of their sin and has repented, but commits the sin before the elders get there, that sin will still be forgiven by God. In this case, we, what we are seeing here is an early form of biblical counseling. It doesn't need to be an elder who counsels, but James here is calling for the elders because they, of all people in the church, are expected to know how to counsel people in the church. That's why they're leaders. Now, this counseling would include praying and anointing with oil, but it would also include more. Biblical counseling doesn't begin unless the sick individual recognizes their sin and wants to repent of it. This is the reason for the command to us to confess our sins to each other. Now, this is a very difficult command to follow. Confessing our sins to each other is embarrassing and humiliating. Now, I want to be clear what this command is not saying. It's not saying we should now start having an hour every, every day, every Sunday on church before service for the congregation to come up and line up here and say what they've done wrong for the week. Okay? That would become, yeah, it'd be too long and it would be, become very legalistic very fast. What this command is telling us is more organic. It's like accountability. It's to be a continuous process where the people we sin against are the ones we confess to. 
and as the opportunity arises, like in small groups, to speak of our sins to others. Telling of these sins, now, yeah, telling of these sins is not to be a shaming practice. I really want to make this clear. Okay, James is not driving here at making everybody feel bad. That's not why James is writing this. James is driving here at reconciliation and encouragement. He knows that if you want to have a happy relationship and a good church life, you need to learn to repent of your sin and keep it out in the open with the people next to you. He doesn't desire the sick person to be punished. He desires their healing. Sin, but see, sin stops healing from occurring. So like a surgeon, God uses the process of confession and repentance to cut the sin that lies between us out of the way. Now, James gives us an example as well as proof of this principle. Elijah is one of the most famous miracle workers of the Bible. He raised a dead child, he's healed the sick, and he's controlled the weather, among other things, as James mentions here. Now, of course, it wasn't actually Elijah doing these miracles. It was God working through him. But James is talking about Elijah as, one, as the one God used to work this miracle. And James points out the connection between Elijah's effectiveness and his righteousness. Because Elijah was righteous... God worked through him to do these miracles. Now, you might initially think that James is giving us an example we can't follow. I mean, how could we ever hope to compare to a guy like Elijah? But notice that James says Elijah was a human being like us. There wasn't something special about him, simply that he was a man who trusted God and sought to see his will done. What is interesting about Elijah is that most of his miracles were done through the conduit of prayer, which is what James commands us here, the most famous of which is this so-called weather miracle. Now, it's important to understand what James is talking about by understanding the context of this weather miracle. So I'm going to give you a little bit of context. When Elijah did the weather miracle, he was dealing with wicked King Ahab one of the many wicked kings who ruled over Israel. Ahab turned the people of Israel away from worshiping God and back to worshiping idols. And he was doing it full throttle, too. So God comes to Elijah and tells him, I want you to pray, and I want you to pray that the the rain would stop falling. And so Elijah prays, and rain stops falling in the land of Israel. So a drought begins. And of course, after a drought soon begins, you'll have starvation. So this is God's judgment on the people of Israel. The reason God made this judgment was to turn the hearts of the Israelites away from their idolatry and back to worshiping him. The people of Israel were in sin with their idolatry, and the drought was a type of illness, like what James talks about here. The drought was a nationwide wake-up call by God to bring the people back to him. Once the people of Israel turned back to God, Elijah prayed for the rain. The time it took for this sickness to be effective was three and a half years. Three and a half hard years after Elijah prayed for the rain to stop, he prayed for the rain to come, and it does. And it doesn't just bring a sprinkle or a drizzle, it's a downpour. There was probably flooding in the land of Israel after this. 
God gives back more healing than they asked for. Why did all this happen through Elijah? Because he had faith, and his faith was seen in his righteous living. He wanted God's will done and was happy to work through Elijah. In the same way, we can understand James' command to the sick individual. The sick person is sick because of sin and has realized he needs help, so he calls for the elders. Then the process of discipline can begin and can begin and ended with reconciliation by the elders praying over him. Then the Lord will raise them up and heal their sickness as they have repented. This individual is a Christian, but they are apparently backslidden or walking in sin. That is how they are saved from this particular sin in verses 19 and 20. For the rest of the church and elders, coming to this sinfully sick individual is the way to save them from the consequences of their sin and reconcile them to others. So let's read verses 19 to 20 again. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So, these verses give us greater understanding to what the healing is referring to in verse 15 and 16. The word save is used both in verse 15 and 19, showing an important connection. To turn someone back from sin through encouragement or confrontation will save that individual from the price of that sin in their life. An easy example of this is alcoholism. Paul declares that being drunk is sinful. However, you can still be saved and at some point get drunk or struggle against that sin. However, there are consequences for that sin. Those who repeatedly get drunk are guaranteed to get liver damage. Those who get drunk stand a good chance of getting hurt while drunk, whether through clumsiness or getting in fights. Those who get drunk stand a smaller chance of blacking out and suffocating to death. And those who get drunk have a small chance of liver failure and dying. Therefore, this sin produces the very real possibility of getting physically ill, just as James speaks of in this passage. Those, now, if the drunken person is willing to repent and calls the elders, then the Lord will heal the person in one of three ways. One way is by miraculously healing the individual, and the other way is by allowing them to die and be rid of that body. The third way is God healing them through our intervention. If you confront the person in this sin, and you, tell, you encourage them, turn away from this, it's going to destroy you, physically destroy you, as well as spiritually, and you do turn them back, they will naturally experience healing in their bodies and souls because they've stopped sinning. Does that make sense? So God has brought about healing through your intervention. Through the natural processes of the body. Now, so, therefore, the Christian who repents of their particular sin will be healed one way or another. That's the promise. You will be healed, it's just not telling you how. Now, on top of this, the Christian who confronts the drunken Christian will find that they have gained a new friend. 
You see, when someone keeps you from some disastrous sin that later on down the line you see that would have ruined my life, you're going to be extremely grateful to that person. It's going to be a new friend. You're going to have much respect for them. And when they sin, you're going to be more likely to forgive them. It'll be easier to forgive them because of what they have done for you. Now, and, now, and the sins that we can help others with don't have to be physically destructive like, alcohol, like drunkenness. They can be spiritually destructive as well. example I'm going to use is anger. Anger is more likely to cause relational harm than it is to cause physical harm, though it can lead to physical harm. Anger causes great damage to people and their relationships. For example, a wife getting angry at her husband, which does happen. Now, if a wife or a husband gets angry and yells at their spouse, damage is caused. The one who was attacked may start avoiding the spouse who got angry at them. And the one who attacked, got angry, might feel shame after they're done being angry and not be willing to go and confront the person they yelled at. A rift is then created in the relationship, and there's a breaking of communion. That's a sickness. That's a very real consequence of a non-physical sin, so to speak. If another Christian confronts the angry one, they may very well stop the consequences of those sins from happening. If you see a fellow Christian sinning, the right thing to do is confront them about it so that they can avoid the disastrous consequences of their sin. James is driving at the church here, like helping themselves stay together and unified by using God's given method of repentance, confession, and reconciliation. This is the primary method to keeping the church strong and healthy. Look around you. Do you love each other enough to do this? I do. Good. This is the end of, the J- of James' letter. The entire letter is about suffering persecution with joy. Now, the whole letter, James has been telling us ways to have joy in suffering, praying while we suffer, rejoicing in good times, and turning from our sin and turning others from theirs are all ways that James tells us we can have joy in suffering, especially in our church life. Jesus came here in human form and died on the cross to give repentance value. You must realize that without Christ dying on the cross, repentance and turning from sin has no value. We might as well still be in our sin. But the reason repentance brings healing, brings forgiveness, is because of what Christ did on the cross. It's because God took his sacrifice and said, that pays for the sins of my people. So now when we repent to each other, we have a responsibility to forgive one another because of what Christ has done for us. Now, Jesus' death also gave us hope for the future. The basis of having joy in suffering, of being able to enjoy, not to enjoy, of being able to endure suffering is the fact that God will return in the future and that we will gain the benefits of what James is talking about here, whether it's in this life or it's in the next. That's a promise you can take to the bank. 
James ends this letter on this note because his great desire is to see a healthy, functioning church that glorifies God even when that church is suffering persecution, which this church was. According to James, the three things necessary for a church to be healthy is to pray with those who suffer, celebrate the good in people's lives, and confess our sins to those we sin against. So if you want this church to continue to be healthy and thriving, pray for those who suffer, praise God for the good times he sends your way, and confess your sins to each other. Now let's pray. Father, I want to thank you just for your all-encompassing love and your love even in directing us on how to order our lives in the church and how to make the church strong and capable under your grace and during hard times and during good times. I pray that you would uh, have the people who heard this message use these lessons where applicable so that they can experience the grace you have to offer. Watch us as we go out over into a dark world and keep us safe. Amen. Thank you, Callan. James is a tough letter, isn't it? But this is a tough world, so we've already talked about all of that. And as Solomon had, uh, had wrote, and as we read 